0: Some people like superhero stories, and at least pre-pandemic would spend, oh, I don't know, about a billion dollars at a box office to see a movie over a single weekend. Others like sad stories. We all can think of a favorite bedtime story. It's often said of us human beings that we are a storytelling race, the call of the story, the prehistoric campfire where stories were acted out. Huge industries today have been built up just around celebrity stories. Or how about sports? The news, scores, results. The stories we remember from our own athletic exploits, however scanty they may be in my case. Stories, stories, stories. Stock stories. Yep, every stock tells a story. As investors, we get to know our company's mission, maybe know their marketing tagline. That's a story. We follow the share price. We experience highs and lows, sometimes dizzying highs or cavernous lows, sometimes both. Our experience as investors gives us the long view, the capital F foolish view, acquaints us with great prosperity creating stories. Especially look across a portfolio, look up and down your brokerage statement, and I bet you see stories. Well, for the sixth time in this podcast's history, this week, we focus on telling stories. We're a stock market podcast, so these are stock stories. Visiting me around the campfire this week are several talented Motley Fool contributors, each of whom has a story to share with you. Five stock stories to make you smarter, happier, and richer, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing.
1: It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner.
0: Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Getting our story on, I'm really looking forward to this. I have four of my friends from the Motley Fool coming in to share their stories. I'll throw in one myself, and that makes five stock stories for this volume six of our stock stories. Episodic series. You know, anybody who's spent any time with this podcast knows that I love episodic series. I think by my count, I've racked up about 22 or 23 different series, and we just kind of bring them back. In this case, this is just once a year. So this is a little bit special for us to be talking about stock stories. Before we get started, I want to mention the opposite of stock stories, well, at least the linguistic inversion, and that would be story stocks. Now, I think a lot of people recognize that story stocks can be good or bad. Story stocks are the ones where you don't necessarily check the numbers. You don't necessarily hold near-term results or any real feet to the fire. There's not necessarily a lot of accountability on your part in terms of management, or where they are today with the company, because there's a story there. You're driven to invest perhaps by the story you see in that stock. And I think that can cut both ways. That can get you sometimes over the hump and with your eyes closed because the valuation just looks too high and you're like, I'm going to buy it because I like the story and that can help. It can also hinder. Sometimes we buy stocks that are just stories and maybe they sounded good for a little while, but turns out there wasn't a lot to that story or maybe not much behind that story. So the phrase story stock is, is one with a neutral connotation for me, but let's invert those words again now. I like stock stories. Having invested for a a few decades, perhaps you have too, or even if it's just for a few years, you probably already have a few of the classic stories. You know, maybe like the one that got away story, or the big fish that you're bragging about that you caught story, or maybe 13 other different versions, because a lot of these are just patterned, templated stories that we recognize. I don't know, from Greek epic right through to. Saturday Night Live comedy. I think we can pull other stories and see some of our own stocks within those stories. But in particular, this week, I've asked my friends and fellow analysts here at The Fool to tell the story of the stock. So they're not just going to be talking about the company, although they will be, because we love business focused investing here. But in particular, I've asked each of them to identify where the stock was at a few different points. You know, include the stock in your story. So if we do our job this week, we'll make you smarter. Happier and richer, you will be enriched by these stories. All right. Well, as we get prepared here, I have an exciting announcement. Due to the growth of this podcast, we can now afford more sound effects than we could in past years. And so, my talented producer, Rick, will be bringing some sound to the stories that you hear. Now, we're going to keep it simple and augment over time. So, Rick, I'm going to ask you to queue up the single sound effect to start story number one. All right. So that helps me start to get in the mood here as I welcome my friend Sanmi Deo. Sanmi, great to have you back to Rule Breaker Investing.
2: Thank you, David. Great to be back.
0: Thank you. And Sanmi, could you remind us, what are you doing around The Fool today? where did you come from pre-Motley Fool?
2: So pre-Motley Fool, I... Actually, own my own kickboxing gym, but I was also working in investment industry as an analyst, and I was also a 20-year member, or maybe more, of, of Motley Fool. Wow! Various services, hidden gems, Stock Advisor, Rule Breaker, um, and I went. I go back all the way as far as reading Fool.com articles on. Um, AOL. So (laughs) I go way back.
0: You don't look that old to me, Sanmeet, but that's because you're staying in shape, the whole kickboxing thing. Yeah,
2: exactly. I hope so. So now at at the Fool, you know, being an analyst, member turned analyst, I'm working on Blastoff, Platinum, and you know, any other any other things around the Fool that that need my assistance or I feel excites me. Um, Wonderful.
0: And before we get you started with your story, Sanmeet, what is one comparison you can make, one similarity between kickboxing and investing?
2: Ooh, well, you know, it does take discipline. You know, kickboxing is all about technique, discipline, investing as well. If you want to do it right and be successful at it, technique, discipline helps you through the emotional waves that, 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 that um, stock investing can take you on.
0: Excellent. And thank you for preparing your story. It's a company that I certainly esteem. I'm a shareholder. I'm I'm a huge fan. I bet you are too, although you don't have to be. We'll see. We'll we'll hear that shortly. But for each of our stories, Sanmita asked each of us to have a title, a title for our story. So could you provide the title of your story?
2: So the title of my story is When Picking Stocks Sometimes It Pays to Invest with Your Gut.
0: Excellent. And I believe that the ticker symbol in question here is CMG. And really hardcore stock market fans will know that that is the ticker symbol of?
2: Chipotle Mexican Grill.
0: All right, let's get it. Yeah, you know, a lot of us just say Chipotle. I often forget the Mexican Grill part, but the ticker symbol helps me remember that, C-M-G. All right, Meat, take it away.
2: So once upon a time in Denver, Colorado, in July on July 13th, 1993, founder Steve Ells, founded chipotle mexican grill as one store grew to 16 in the local area of denver Mm. um and can and 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 made it a success and in conjunction with that later on in 1998 mcdonald's actually invested in chipotle giving access to capital a massive supply chain and help with sophisticated restaurant operations this kind of helped it to grow to over 500 locations by 2006.
0: You know, I'd forgotten about the McDonald's tie-in. Yeah, they were a strategic partner. They were they owned a lot of Chipotle early back in the day.
2: Yeah, and it was a it was it was actually a great investment for Chipotle to to help them succeed in in, in the long run. So, in conjunction with Chipotle's early growth in the early 2000s, myself a bright-eyed bushy-tailed college student at the UT Austin, discovered my a burrito place while I was on the search for a lunch option the first chipotle in austin i believe was located just off campus on a street famously called the drag um it's a strip where there's lots of coffee shops restaurants clothing stores and i immediately fell in love with the food there was lines it was popular and even though it was relatively pricey for a college kid i i, I loved going there
0: you know the thing i love about chipotle is as long as the lines were they always moved fast
2: Yes, absolutely. That was one of the amazing things about it. A lot of people actually would see the lines and say I don't want to go, but when you actually stood in the line, you would be surprised how quickly it went. So that was amazing about it. Now you can imagine my delight when I heard that Chipotle announced to go public, and they went public on in an IPO on January 26th of 2006. Mm. And when they when they announced to go public, I knew about the restaurant already. I felt like it was succeeding in Austin where Tex-Mex and burritos were plenty. There was a competitor chain called Freebirds, which was popular. And it competed very well with with that chain as well. So I I thought it could succeed almost anywhere and potentially be a nationwide kind of chain. I feel like you were right about that. Keep going. (laughs) Yes. Now, I was right about that, but I wanted to buy the stock, but I didn't. And in hindsight, that was a mistake. Um, I don't remember the exact reason. It could have been my view at the time of wanting to have jump right in on IPOs or maybe getting lost in the weeds of detailed numbers or market commentary about the stock. And the interesting thing too is that, you know, having experienced the brand, coming to New York where I first was when I when when the company went public, no one really knew about Chipotle back then. It was, you know, the Wall Street analysts were, oh Chipotle, is it going to succeed? How is it going to succeed? And I kind of one tidbit of, of knowledge of being in college, seeing it succeed, Made me feel like it would. So, mm. you, you know, on the first day of its IPO, it doubled. Um, closing at forty four, it priced at twenty two, closed at forty four, making the best U.S. based IPO in six years at the time, and it was the second best restaurant IPO after Boston Market, um, which w- made made me kick myself for not buying it. But you know. As after that, after it went public, the stock rose to a peak of about 151.88 on December 28, 2007, you know, producing double digit same store sales growth um, and, and and doing very well. Now, this was kind of around the time of my personal career journey when I used Chipotle as a stock write up and a model to kind of land my first research job at a startup investment firm. So wow, that was part of my... And I, and I can't remember now if I actually had owned the stock at the time, but I know I, I really liked the stock and the company. So then I got the job, the Great Financial Recession hit, and we all know about that. The stock bottomed on November 25th, 2008 to about forty four eighty, dollars close to its first day IPO price. Um, now, even with the Great Financial Crisis, the company s- continued to deliver... Positive same store sales growth. The company itself was doing well, but the stock was taking a hit because of all the environmental issues going on with the financial crisis. Um, now, when it hit the market bottom in March two thousand nine, Chipotle stock, along with the rest of the market, continued to ascend um, on its on its path. Business was doing well, and then, as we all probably remember, in late two thousand fifteen. Nearly 500 people were estimated to have gotten sick in a series of E. coli, nor- norovirus, and salmonella outbreaks. You know, and the con- confidence and trust in the brain eroded. Their same sort of sales dropped significantly. And it was its future wasn't certain. Many people were saying, stay away. This is, this is done. They're not going to get away from this. Um... um it was a tumultuous time for the company. And then on February 8th, 2016, they actually closed all the restaurants nationwide for a few hours during the morning mm. for an all-staff meeting on food safety. Um, I don't know how much impact that had, but but they did something. They were tr- they were just trying to make, make
0: get confidence back and show that they can kind of get a handle on this. And you know, it's funny, me because I feel as if there was so much media coverage it's almost hard to know what it would have been like inside the company or how impactful all these things really were. But in terms of the media coverage and the the damage to the brand and just the constant, you know, oh my gosh, wait, did somebody just get sick in that Chipotle in that state or that market? And all of a sudden that would become part of a national story. Some of it was probably tentative and maybe not even true in the end, I'm not sure. But certainly the threat was real. Uh, They had made mistakes. And like some other great companies over the course of the time, they Knuckled under, they they took the hits and they said, we need to fix this.
2: Yep, and you know, in, 20, in December of 2016, the co-CEO, Monty Moran, stepped down. 11 months later, the founder, Steve Ells, stepped down and the search for a new CEO began. You know, and then over the next several years, the stock crashed from a high of 731.19 on September 21st, 2015 to 251.33 on February 13th, mm. 2018. Now this was around the time when I thought, all right, I believe in this brand. I believe in this business model. There's other restaurant companies, like like Jack in the Boss, for example, that had come 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 back from from food crises. Mm-hmm. The business model wasn't broken. It was just a safety and 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 with Chipotle, they use fresh food. They had a commitment to food with integrity. Some of that was at play in terms of organic food being part of uh, their 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 ingredients that. You know, caused a little bit more problems. Um, so I actually went ahead and bought some shares at around 251 in February 2018.
0: Wow, that and, was basically right at that bottom, Sunmi. Yeah.
2: And lo and behold, the next day, I think it was literally the next that afternoon or the next day, they announced that Brian Nickel, the former CEO of Taco Bell, was going to be the CEO. Mm. And the stock popped um, almost like 10% that day. And then from there, it's been kind of off to the races hitting as high as 1900 and it's around 1800 now. Um, it's been a seven bagger for me and, and, um, you know, they, they recovered from the food scares. They got back to strong Samsung sales and profitability. And then they face another test in the pandemic when they, when, when everything shut down, but they had already set up the, the, their business with digital and technology that kind of helped them weather that storm. So brilliant. So it, that's a great story is one of my favorite stories of, of a company that that went through different growth spurts and also my involvement in the company uh, in various times a main a main lesson of the story for me is you know when you know a stock from personal experience you have kind of a strong gut intuition on it you know it could pay off to maybe put a little bit of your deep analytical work and take a small position you know any position and sometimes your gut is a better investor than your brain and finally another lesson was you know had I owned the stock, you know I had owned the stock on and off previously, and you know I was probably trying to time the purchase and sales or was getting nervous the stock went up quite a bit I trimmed but you know if you believe in the business, you have the guts to hang on, enjoy the ride you know not all all stocks are going to be winners like Chipotle, but you you never know if you have a couple like like those, they could far outweigh the losers in your um, in your portfolio. So when picking stocks sometimes it pays to invest with your gut and as I, as I've learned with the Chipotle stock story.
0: Well, and thank you very much. You really told a very well-rounded story, Sanmi. You took us from the start of Chipotle. I couldn't remember what year that was. Thank you, 2006. Right through some really hard times, and then ultimately, at least as of now, a wonderful success story, a long-term success story. But like any long-term story, there are going to be bumps in the road. I also love that you were a little bit part of that story. That's some of the best stories. When we notice the documentarian all of a sudden is in the movie himself, (laughs) and there you were, acting on your gut. And that—that that is one thing I want each of our storytellers to do this week, and that is give us the takeaway. And you gave us your takeaway. Samit, thank you very much as well for illustrating where the stock was at different points. That's at the heart of stock stories. So Samit Deo, I assume you're going to continue to hold your Chipotle? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think
2: it still has quite a bit of ways to go.
0: Wonderful. Well, It's one I own, too. I think a lot of Motley Fool members do. Some probably longer than we have. I mean, that's a 2006, that's a 15-year since IPO. I think it came online for Rule Breaker somewhere around 2007, thanks to Rick Minares. But just delighted. I I also just love the picture of you in Austin, in Texas, in college, surrounded by lots of other Tex-Mex foods and going, you know what? I think this one's got some legs and it's got some national possibilities. And boy, did it ever. Well, thank you, Sanmeet, for joining us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you so much, David. All right. Well, I mentioned up front that, yeah, we have a bigger budget than we ever had before for this podcast. And so we're able to bring additional sound effects that we previously couldn't afford. So with each of our storytellers, we're going to be adding an additional sound. Again, this is all done by my brilliant producer, Rick. So Rick, get us in the mood here for stock story number two, as you thread together two sound effects. All right. Well, with the mood set, I want to welcome to this campfire, Jim Mueller, longtime analyst, friend of mine here at The Motley Fool. Jim, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing.
1: Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. Jim, how are you spending your time these days around The Fool?
1: (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, I am now the advisor or lead analyst, lead advisor, I guess you call it, for Three Services Options, Future of Entertainment. So I took over options January two Januaries ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Future of Entertainment. I've been uh, since summer of 2020, and we just launched the uh, Energy Insider uh, just a couple of months ago, and I'm the lead lead of that as well. Wonderful. So So very very busy.
0: We're keeping you gainfully employed. Is that a fair generalization?
1: <laughs> yeah, you could say that. And I appreciate it too.
0: <laughs> it's a win-win-win, Jim. And thank you so much for joining us for Stock Stories. This is your third appearance on this series. So anybody who enjoys Jim's story coming up, you can go back and hear two others. I think Netflix is one of them in past volumes of stock stories on Rule Breaker Investing. Jim, what is the stock that you're bringing us this, this time?
1: I'm bringing Rollins, which is on the New York Stock Exchange, ticker R-O-L.
0: Excellent. And Jim, what is the title of your stock story about Rollins?
1: Boring can be great.
0: Excellent. Jim, take it
1: away. Once upon a time in 1901, there was a young boy named Otto Orkin. He also, also, when he grew up, he was uh, known as the Rat Man, and he sold poison to kill rats door-to-door, <laughs> <laughs> and did very, very well at it, uh, grew as a pest control company uh, for many, many years, and in 1964, another company called Rollins Broadcasting, founded by John and Wayne Rollins in 1948, and at that time was a, primarily a radio company, of radio Owning a couple of radio companies, they became they took over Rollin, uh, Orkin as the first leverage buyout in the United States. They oh my six, gosh! Yeah, they paid sixty-two million dollars, and barely a penny of it was their own.
0: So, Jim, this was an era where companies started to acquire businesses that were outside of really their their main calling, and they became conglomerates. I remember Beatrice was an example. But is this kind of the start of some of that? conglomeration of american companies smashed together arguably under the same cfo maybe but maybe not the same business models
1: uh I, I don't know rollins by then uh or shortly thereafter uh got into energy uh they got into marine uh products so and those those companies still exist but they've they've since been spun out okay. uh, separated into separate companies but uh Oregon was what really made the rollins family fortune uh and if you're familiar with pest control at all you're familiar with the white shirt red t-shirt hard hat uh guy or gal the orkin, orkin man. man or the orkin woman uh orkin person just doesn't sound right but the orkin man orkin, orkin woman uh coming out and spraying for bugs and uh treating your your uh, business or your residence for cockroaches and termites and mosquitoes and bed bugs and removing uh removing raccoons or bats from your belfry or what have you so mm. the company has grown uh over the years to include all that
0: and all of these services are much appreciated not just by me I think but by many listening in right now
1: oh yes I'm sure and you definitely don't want to be a business that gets known for having rats or having cockroaches mm, yeah. I mean if you're a restaurant that'll get you shut down in a in a New York minute if you're a hotel you don't want bed bugs in in your rooms and, and so on and so the the business as as a as it as it stands is pretty much recession proof. I mean, even during a recession, hotels have to stay clean, restaurants have to stay clean. You don't want raccoons in your in your uh, attic uh, at home and so on. And so, the company is uh, has a bunch of recurring revenue. About eighty percent of its revenue is recurring from hmm. people getting these treatments over and over and over over time. Uh, and as uh, Gary Rollins, the CEO, likes to say, cockroaches don't read the Wall Street Journal. So it's, it's pretty recession-proof.
0: Now, I don't know this company very well at all, so I'm really enjoying getting to know it. I always love corporate histories. I love that it starts with the door-to-door rat poisoner. <laughs> but did you just say that the CEO of the company is Gary Rollins? In other words, the same Rollins from the radio company decades ago?
1: No, he's their son. John and Wayne uh, were the were the founder of the Rollins Company. Yeah, no, I I didn't Uh,
0: actually mean that older person. But this is the same family. This is
1: oh, the same family. Yes. Yeah. Uh, They're they're a big name in Georgia, which is where the company is. I think it's in Alpharetta, Georgia. I think that's where the headquarters. Anyway, down 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 south. and the family itself has a bit of history. The, uh, at one time, Gary's son, Greg, was an executive uh, on the management team of or- of Rollins itself, but he's since been kicked out probably because he and his siblings tried to s- actually sue the family, especially Wayne's estate, their grandfather's estate. Uh, he wanted to uh, kind of control the finances of the family down through the generations and he set up some very restrictive trusts and things like that. And Greg and his uh, siblings tried to break it. And they ended up settling, but uh, Greg lost his job at Rollins as a result. So it was the two sons of Wayne, uh, Randall, Randy, Randall and uh, uh, Gary. Uh, and Randall passed away last uh, August in 2020. And so he was the chairman for 30 years Gary's been the CEO for thirty or forty wow uh, years. It's one He's of those companies. Yeah, eighty-eight years old. Uh, he just had a knee replacement, uh, but uh, they just they just uh, put their uh, president and COO uh, onto the board of directors, and I think that's a move to name uh, name this uh, guy okay. the new CEO. Sure, succession
0: so important. Not just an HBO dystopian comedy, <laughs> but actually real
1: life stuff. Yeah. So I, I first ran across this company uh, via a screen I run that looks for companies that have moderate to high cash returns on invested capital and have that for several years in a row, either at a steady state or slowly growing. And when I found this in September of 2015 and shortly thereafter bought some shares for myself, um, it had had a decade of 40% cash return on invested capital. Or, or better, I think thirty-nine percent was the lowest. 50 percent even was the highest for a decade, and it's done nothing but similar things uh, since then. So, uh, this screen manages to pick up a lot of fool recommendations over the over the years, so that's encouraging. Uh, and I've had some good success with with picking companies out of this. So, at that time uh, in September twenty fifteen, I bought at twelve dollars and sixty eight cents. That's uh, split adjusted. And, uh, it was, it was, uh, growing its top line, its revenue about 7% a year growing its, uh, net income line about 10, 12, 13% a year, but it had been very, very consistent 55 quarters in a row. That was 13.75 years in a row of year over year revenue growth. Wow. 37 quarters in a row. That's eight, a little over eight years of year over year net income growth. And this was back in 2015. And it had uh, increased its dividend by 12% or more for 13 consecutive years. So this was a real steady company cash flow, real predictable. And uh over the over time, uh, uh shareholders have been well rewarded. In January of 2017, uh I and Abby Mallon managed to get it named into stock advisor on Tom's side, and shares at the time were $15.13 and by then it had continued its streak of to 61 straight quarters of revenue growth 42 straight quarters of net income growth year over year and it continued uh, raising its dividend it's expanded beyond just rats and cockroaches it does bed bu- as i mentioned bed bugs mosquitoes small creatures uh, has a whole bunch of brands under its name safeguard industry of Fum- fumigant TrueTech, tech all pest there's a, a company called home team that installs in the wall pest control for new built homes that uh, a new home buyer can just call up Rollins and say, yeah, okay, let, let's start this. And they have that into their, into their, uh, into their business. Today it operates on every continent of the world, except Antarctica. There's very few S <laughs> in Antarctica. Um, it has had 18 point 18 and three quarter year uh, years in a row, 75 straight quarters of year over year growth. It's only had six straight quarters of net income year-over-year growth because 2019 broke the streak, Uh, but it's paid a dividend throughout. In 2020, it had to reduce it for the first time in over a decade. So it broke its 18 years of raising the dividend, but it's- And Jim, uh, just- give me
0: a sense on the dividend. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners will know what a dividend yield is, for, but for anybody who doesn't, the dividend yield is sort of the percentage. It's almost like the interest rate you get paid for owning the stock from one year to the next. So owning the stock, roughly, what is the dividend yield for Rollins through these years?
1: Uh, the dividend yield- uh, the most recent dividend yield is 1.3%. Okay. And, but they were paying around 2%. And I expect them to, to get that get back up.
0: And this that. is clearly a company that can afford to pay that dividend. Some companies oh, yeah. borrow money or do other crazy no. stuff to try to keep their dividends going. That's not necessary for Rollins.
1: No, not at all. Uh, they, they were only paying out about 50%. Of their net income as a mm, dividend. So it's wonderful. Uh, very, very affordable. So just recently, the share price is now $35.75. And both my, I and Stock Advisor members who followed along <laughs> have done really, really well over the years.
0: Well, I was hoping you would provide that share price because I don't follow Rollins, ticker symbol R-O-L, so I didn't really know where it had gone from Tom's stock advisor of several years ago, 15, but it sounds pretty good for a company that's more than doubled with a good dividend and sounds so financially stable, Jim. You know, I'm thinking about all of the pests out there, and it sounds like they've got them all covered, although I didn't hear you mention trolls. Are they able <laughs> Are they able to deal with
1: trolls? Well, um if we're talking about Billy Goat rough kind of trolls, maybe, but the internet trolls, no, they, they don't do internet at all.
0: <laughs> Turns out all you need to do is just don't feed those those trolls. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good. Uh, well, Jim, thank you very much. You know, I've asked each of our analysts to pull out the didactic lesson that we should all be taking away from their story. Jim, what is the didactic lesson I should be learning
1: from your story about Rollins? So in this one, it's Boring is Great. Uh, It does a necessary service, but not an exciting service. I mean, killing bugs, come on. Uh, It's not going to get headlines in in the financial news world for sure, uh, unlike Apple or Netflix or any of those uh, high-flying tech companies. But you can make a lot of money and get very good returns out of a boring, cash-flow-positive growing company over Wonderful. The years.
0: Wonderful. Well, Jim, thank you for starting that story at the very beginning, the founding of the company Orkin back in the day. I, I always love corporate histories. I say this about once or twice a year on this podcast, but if I were in academia, I would try to take up the subject of corporate histories. I feel like so much of our history is just what were the four causes of World War I and how did, how did the Roman Empire fall? And it's always about wars or politics, but my golly, how many great, especially American stories are there of companies and how they were founded and how they morphed into something totally different over the course of time? So, you know, if there's any chair out there that needs to be endowed for the corporate historian, somebody who understands that business history is fascinating, I'm happy to to make an annual donation. that I'm just putting that out there on this podcast right now and encouraging the young academics of the next era to pay some attention to corporate histories. I mean, I do love the About Us page on most uh, companies' websites that'll show sometimes pictures from the early days, but I really appreciate you giving us a little of the history there. And Jim, keep up the great work.
1: Well, maybe next time I'll bring in a company that's been around since 1840s.
0: (laughs) Sounds good to me. They're out there. They're out there, and they're not always American either. There's some amazing European and Japanese and other companies that have been doing good work of different kinds for the longest time. Well, Jim Mueller, thank you very much for stock story number two.
1: My pleasure, David.
0: All right, and it's time for stock story number three. Now, I assume you've been listening all the way through to the show. I mean, some people might just want to hear Emily's story, so they see Emily Flippen is coming to this week's podcast, so they fast forward to everything and just get to this place in the podcast. But for those of us who've gotten here, slowly, second by second, you know to expect some sound effects as we get ready for story number three. You're probably curious, what is that third sound that Rick is going to thread in to the ambiance that we are creating on this week's Stock Stories Volume 6? Emily Flippin, a delight to have you back on Rule Breaker Investing. You are going to tell stock story number three.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. It's been a
0: it's been a minute. Thank you. Now, before you start with the story, Emily, could you just update us? What are you doing in and around Fooldom these days? Sure. A number of things,
3: but the biggest new thing in my world has actually been working on Stock Advisor. Since uh, you made the decision earlier this year to transition your focus, it left a little bit of a hole for some other people's focuses to, to take that place. And so I've spent a lot of my time thinking about your side of Stock Advisor, what is now known as Team Breakers side of Stock Advisor.
0: Wonderful, Emily. Well, I'm delighted to know that. And you know, if I did leave a hole, it was an opportunity. Uh, and and indeed, I wanted pe- great people like you to be able to enjoy that opportunity. That was certainly part of my calculus as I thought about uh, how I wanted to spend my next, my third chapter of my 27 years at a time chapters of my life. So thank you very much for filling that hole. And it's been a delight to see you and the work of many other full analysts in that same regard. Now, Emily. Why don't you share with us the stock that you'll be telling a story about?
3: Sure. The business I'll be focusing on today is actually Stitch Fix. Really an interesting story that I think has some critical lessons for investors, uh, not just for their stocks, but for their lives as well.
0: Excellent. Ticker symbol SFIX. This is one that I picked. Not one of my better stock picks, I don't think, at this point, for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. It's had some ups and some downs. I'm sure she'll be talking us through that. Emily, what is the title of your story? Stitch fixes Missing Thread. I would say of the titles so far, that's the most convincingly literary title <laughs> that we've had thus far. Well played, Emily. Get us started.
3: Once upon a time... There was a girl with a wonderful idea. In fact, she brought this idea all the way through her MBA program until she was able to put it into reality. And that woman was Katrina Lake, the co-founder and former CEO of Stitch Fix. Now, Katrina Lake was one of the youngest women ever as a co-founder and CEO to bring her company public. Stitch Fix, as many investors know, heavily focused on improving the experience for people to buy clothing by providing them boxes of clothing that both stylists and algorithms helped contribute to. Now, let me take you back to this moment because it was November 2017. And if you were an investor during this year, you may know that it was a pretty hot year for IPOs. We had Okta, we had Appian. We had Roku and Redfin. They were all businesses that had gone public earlier that year to a lot of success. Now, Stitch Fix was a victim of that success. Hmm. Expectations for Katrina Lakes business were incredibly high heading into their IPO. But because investors couldn't quite figure out what a tech enabled company should be valued at, Stitch Fix actually ended up being priced the low end of their expected range, going public at $15 a share.
0: I had forgotten that, Emily. Thank you for reminding me of that. And I'm curious, and you may or may not be putting yourself in the, in the story. Meat put himself in his Chipotle story earlier. Have you actually used, have you subscribed? Have you tried the box sent to you from Stitch Fix?
3: After a number of listeners were frustrated by my comments on the service a couple of years ago without ha- having ever tried it myself, I since have tried the service. Of course, it was an interesting and, and, and great experience. I wasn't a big fan myself. But I will say my boyfriend loved it.
0: All right. Now, I'm not saying that is one of the chapters of your story. I'm not sure you were headed there. So we can at least call that a footnote. But I was, I was curious. Carry on.
3: Well, I was curious as well. A lot of investors were. The business, Business again, going public at $15 a share was less than the $18 to $20 a share that was expected initially. And it's interesting because Katrina Lake, when reflecting upon this IPO process, later said that she felt like a disappointment when in reality, that $15 a share shouldn't have been. It was significantly higher, the highest that, that Stitch Fix had ever been valued. But after a really volatile first day, it was considered by some to be a little bit of a broken IPO. It closed its first day of trading at just barely above where it had listed $15.15, hmm. leading a lot of investors and Lake herself to be somewhat disappointed.
0: You know, earlier, Sanmit mentioned that Chipotle's IPO, the company doubled the first day, it was the second best restaurant. IPO of all time to only to Boston Market. Of course, back in those days, it was actually called Boston Chicken, which wasn't in the end a great predictor of how Boston Market would end up. That first day can be telling, Emily, but I don't think we should necessarily view it as predictive.
3: Not at all. And in fact, you'll find with the story of Stitch Fix, the first day is not representative of the reality behind the business at all. I mentioned that only because it showed how controversial the business was when it initially went public in the minds of investors. There were a lot of people who didn't buy in to the idea, whereas other people saying this would revolutionize the $300 billion apparel market um, by combining stylists and algorithms, collecting valuable data and insight. It was a very divisive company. And if you actually look through the first few quarters of Stitch Fix as a public Company, you'll find that stock price really moved sideways for the first few quarters. Nothing really happened. Nothing bad was happening. There were some concerns maybe around margin pressure, but the company was profitable, was posting customer growth, but people were just confused. And for those first six months as a public company, Stitch Fix's stair price really stayed within a relatively narrow range, a $15 to $25 range mm. as that sentiment came and went.
0: You know, It's funny because I feel as if we're talking historically about a company that's, well, in the past, which it is not nearly like Rollins, which is a lot. I mean, this is a pretty contemporary company, but a lot of these questions still sort of remain. And I think the most compelling one to me has always been are, in this case, Americans, I think mostly, are Americans willing to not go clothes shopping in person, but have something sent to them in a box by somebody who we hope is getting to know their tastes over time? And it, could that become mainstream enough to support a successful rule-breaking business you know some things are easier to predict like streaming i mean that feels like an important trend or the cloud that always for us in rule breakers felt like a real thing even before it existed but even now years later i'm still scratching my head at this one keep going emily Uh, A key investing
3: principle that you always mention, it's not the key investing principle of Stitch Fix, is to invest in opportunities that are obvious. And I think some of what Stitch Fix struggled with was that it wasn't obvious. In fact, if you look at just the share price of Stitch Fix, you may think that something really big happened in June 2018, less than a year after Stitch Fix went public. But in fact, it's that sentiment. It's those expectations that was driving a lot of the share price, um, Stitch Fix was making some headway into new initiatives, things like men's clothing, children's clothing, even some international expansion. Those things kind of shifted sentiment. They weren't being executed upon quite yet, but people started to buy into the idea of getting their clothes shipped to them in a box. And in fact, in June 2018, Stitch Fix's stock price had suddenly, over a period of just a few months, risen over 150%. It reached a new all-time high of $50 a share in September of that year. Mm. But there really is that old adage of the faster they rise, the harder they fall. Uh-oh. And then the- I know. I'm, I'm foreshadowing here, but it just does show, again, back to that sentiment shift. Uh, lofty expectations meant that investors wanted to see real progress in Stitch Fix's performance, and that progress wasn't really materializing. People didn't quite know what they were looking for. And after one disappointing quarter, a quarter in which Stitch Fix just by the way, missed on revenue and customer growth. Stitch Fix pulled back over 50% in less than a month. And after what had started out to be a really incredible year, by the end of 2018, Stitch Fix's share price was a measly $18 a share.
0: Well, and I'd like to mention, because I love to talk about my losers because nobody else seems to, so I do. And this is a great example of one. So We brought this stock to Motley Fool Rule Breakers in August of that year, August 2018. Now, I know you mentioned it crested over 50 that year. Uh, We got it on the way down, which I thought was going to be good. It was at 36 and a half, so 36 and a half in August. But as you mentioned, yeah, just months later, we had been basically cut in half with our brand new shiny Rule Breaker. Sometimes that's the way the cookie crumbles.
3: If if investors were having an identity crisis with Stitch Fix, I think Stitch Fix was also going through an identity crisis of its own. Uh, I remember Tim Byers was the analyst who I believe was kind of the initial catalyst behind bringing it uh, to the Motley Fool universe. And he had a very big vision for where he saw the business going. He was one of those investors that had great ideas about what Stitch Fix could become. Um, But there were some, I would say, maybe inconsistencies or, or struggles with the identity of Stitch Fix in internally. I uh, wasn't quite sure. Was it a business whose secret sauce was the stylist and the people? Or was it a business with data and AI that produced better outcomes without the need for human touch? Uh, so over the next year, I mean, all of 2019 was just such a, I'll say, a sideways year for Stitch Fix because, um, you know, despite rising over 40% that year, it just barely kept up with the broader markets. It ended that year at $25 a share. Again, only a few bucks above where it was a year prior and really nothing had changed. And that was the interesting story behind Stitch Fix was, you know, I, I know Jim previously talked about boring companies. It was a boring year for Stitch Fix 2019.
0: Very ironic because 2019 was such a dynamic year for so many rule breakers. And then 2020, well, that was its own uh, surprising thing uh, in both directions for for many different companies. But I have to admit, since I don't personally own Stitch Fix, even though it is a losing recommendation of mine and I don't own all my losers and I also don't own all my winners, never bought any Shopify myself, but I'm so glad so many Motley Fool members own Shopify. So I'm not really keeping up with Stitch Fix that much. What did happen in 2020? Oh,
3: let's talk about that because you could play it one of two ways heading into the pandemic. Either you could look at the lack of demand for clothing, right? We were all stuck at home, weren't going outside. Who needs new clothes when you're sitting in front of a computer monitor? But you could also say, look, Stitch Fix was already a digitally native business. Mm. It didn't have to pivot for a remote world. And actually, if you look at Stitch Fix's performance versus other clothing retailers, 2020 was a pretty decent year for the business. While it wasn't growing, it was growing faster than the industry average, which was negative growth. So the fact is, is that Stitch Fix, while not being in the right place at the right time when it comes to the pandemic, ultimately did outperform its peers. But the interesting thing about Stitch Fix was when you look at 2020, the story wasn't COVID. It might be the first thing that your mind goes to, but the story was actually in December. All of this events accumulated in its December 2020 earnings report. The business posted revenue growth of around 10%, a small bottom line profitability. None of these things were new for Stitch Fix. Again, performing similarly quarter after quarter, many years. However, heading into this report, more than 20% of Stitch Fix's shares were sold short. And when their quarter was better than expected, when they had that 10% revenue growth, lots of people bought the stock to cover their shorts. And that created a really dynamic short squeeze. And within one day, Stitch Fix's stock rose more than 50%. And by the end of January 2021, so this year, when the short squeeze finally came to an end, Stitch Fix's share price had risen over 200% and reached an all time high of nearly $114 a share.
0: And, you know, I'm never going to be the guy who tries to sell at the top because I generally just try to hold past everybody else, whether it's a winner or a loser, usually. And when it's a winner, that really rewards you. When it's a loser, well, you know, it just kind of becomes irrelevant to your portfolio because your winners take on greater size and your losers don't. So I've never felt guilty about not timing my exits because I don't even think about that. But wow, now knowing where Stitch Fix is today, which you're about to mention, Emily, that $114 exit earlier this year would have been pretty sweet.
3: I will say, if you are a a passive investor holding shares of Stitch Fix or any company, uh, it would have been easy to look back at January and think that something had fundamentally changed in the business Uh, that would justify such an increase in share price. But to be clear, nothing really had changed. Again, the sentiment had shifted. The shorts had covered but fundamentally nothing was different about the business at $114 a share versus $35 a share or $25 a share. Mm. Uh, But since these highs earlier this year, obviously Stitch Fix has pulled back as a result of this short squeeze. It's fallen more than 65%. It trades at less than $35 a share today, about where it was this time last year. Uh, And it's weird to do this story, David, because as you know, so much of the story for Stitch Fix is probably still ahead of it.
0: It is. And it's funny also for me to think about that initial stock pick, which I've already bemoaned. I won't do it one more time. But to think about Stitch Fix stock, which was at 36.5, as I mentioned earlier, when I picked it in August of 2018. So 36.5 today, it's right about 35 at market close as we're recording here on Tuesday, November 9th. So yeah, there's been so much drama. There's been a lot of up and down. I know you're going to speak to this briefly as we close. There's not the same CEO anymore, and the stock's about where it was just about three years ago. And well the market's gone up, so it's been a significant market underperformer, but it's it's about flat, which is kind of the story of stitch fix on the public markets.
3: I will say I glossed over the departure of Katrina Lake from her role as CEO, giving the spot to former President Elizabeth Spaulding. I did that on purpose because the market didn't react strongly to this departure. Typically, when a co-founder and CEO leaves, uh, there tends to be a lot of fear. And I'll say this, the stock was only down about 5% on the news of Katrina Lake's departure. Again, going back to just how lack of a vision, I think, Stitch Fix had. And, and Spalding at least came in with a clear outline about where she saw Stitch Fix was going, although clearly in a different direction than maybe the initial thoughts that, that Katrina Lake had when bringing the company public.
0: All right, Emily. So, what are we to learn from the story of Stitch Fix?
3: It might sound obvious right now, but the big lesson here is that major accomplishments will always overshadow sentiment. And when you look at the story of Stitch Fix, it is a story of changing sentiment, but not a ton of major accomplishments. So, Regardless of when you bought the stock, it was likely during one of these big shifts in sentiment, whether it be during a short squeeze, um, whether it be when they're launching their men's business, right? It all comes down to what is the business accomplishing. And without any real big moves and becoming that disruptive market opportunity for clothing, uh, we've seen the results of that and Stitch Fix's share price.
0: You know, Emily, I don't think I should let you leave without asking you, do you have any predictions or thoughts about Stitch Fix going forward? Because, you know, this is a stock, as we mentioned, that's in the mid-30s today. It was over a hundred just months ago. New CEO, maybe new vision, who knows where this company might go in the next five years. It remains an active rule breakers pick. I will
3: say, I think there is more of Stitch Fix's story in front of it than there is behind it. So if I was a shareholder, I'd be looking forward to that unknown, that future. Although I am, I think, maybe conflicted about what I think that future could look like. A new CEO, Elizabeth Spaulding, I think has a clear vision for where she wants to bring the company in a way that I was never quite sold with co-founder Katrina Lake. But at the same time, that vision puts them in direct competition as a traditional retailer. And man, I don't know, David, but that's a hard market to compete in.
0: Well, we will keep watching. And part of being invested is that you pay more attention when it's an active recommendation of yours or a shareholding of yours than if you weren't, than if you didn't. So I think part of the beauty of investing is being invested. We're going to have our winners. We're going to have our losers. But boy, do we learn by paying attention. And there's no substitute for paying attention than actively recommending or owning a stock. Emily Flippin, thank you. It was a delight to be with you this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks, David. All right. Well, from Emily Flippen, we're headed next to my friend Aaron Bush. Aaron will be sharing with us stock story number four this particular week. And I don't know, am I the only one who's excited to hear what the fourth sound effect that Rick Engdahl will thread in to this intro as we begin to welcome Aaron to the campfire? And welcome, Aaron. It's great to be with you again. Thanks for having me back, David. Well, you're very welcome. Aaron, what are you doing around The Fool these days? Uh,
4: well, for those who are listening, not much has changed since I had answered this a couple weeks ago. <laughs> uh, I, I I still am um, co-advising Rule Breakers and Blastoff and Platinum. So I have a, a handful of services I'm overlooking, always thinking about, you know, beating the market, finding awesome, you know, rule breaker ideas. Um, So still doing that.
0: And you're right. That thing hasn't changed that much from two weeks ago when you were last on this podcast, but not everybody was necessarily listening to Mailbag. So I always like to kind of reintro. But with that said, you've compelled me to ask what has changed for you in any regard in the last two weeks? Well, the stock we're about to talk about has changed quite a bit in the past Ooh, two weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. And this is another active recommendation. This is one I own as well. The company is, Aaron? Zillow. Ticker symbol Z or ZG, depending on which class of share you have, but they're both Zillow Group, Zillow. And uh, yeah, this is a longtime rule breaker, a company that has not been shy to take risks at different points. It's certainly... Uh, is a disruptor, and sometimes, Aaron, companies can disrupt themselves, it seems to me. Not to steal from your didactic lesson, I'm not sure what that's going to be, but as we get ready for Zillow, what is the title
4: of your story? My title is Go Hard or Go Home. (laughs) Once upon a time, Zillow went public on July 20th, 2011 at a split-adjusted $10 a share. And the story of Zillow, in my mind, the the stock story of Zillow really plays out in three arcs. And the first arc starts at that IPO, uh, which is what we can call the rise of Zillow 1.0. And at the time... Zillow was a leader in making the residential real estate market more transparent. Zillow is known for its Zestimates, its value estimates of every domestic residential property, which were interesting to anyone who owned a home, but especially useful to those who were looking to transact real estate. And then Zillow used those many millions of interested eyeballs to advertise real estate agents. And that agent business became the core money maker of Zillow's business. And over the next few years, the company lightly expanded into adjacent offerings like rentals and connecting users to mortgage providers. And the company even made a large acquisition of competitor Trulia in 2014 when the stock was around $40 a share, so about four times where it was when it went public three years prior. But the core business, it still stayed pretty centered around serving agents. And really, this first arc of Zillow, Zillow 1.0, it ended um, in 2018. So about seven years post IPO when the stock was in the mid 30s. So up from its IPO, uh, but still down from where it was trading four years
0: prior. Mm. And you know, part of the story of Zillow, and help me out of here a little bit, Aaron, but you know, the founders. So there was a team of founders, and kind of you know, th- there was the PayPal mafia of which Elon Musk was one, kind of helped start PayPal. And a lot of those people went on to great things. Well, this was sort of a similar story. I remember Rich Barton in particular, and I'm sure you'll mention his name at least once during the story. He was one of the co founders. He had helped create Expedia. So he had, and I think a few others had some experience there. I remember Spencer Raskoff, uh, an, another um, co-founder of the company, uh, he had started Hotwire.com, which I remember using back in the day, but I can't even exactly remember what Hotwire is, but maybe it's travel. Something like that. I'm making that up. You don't even need to know. I don't but, know. Yeah. But the, these names are relevant because they became the leaders at different points in the chapters of Zillow.
4: Right. That That's correct. And so in that first arc, Spencer Raskoff was the CEO but really entering the second arc which begins in early 2019 that is and so again at that time the stock price was around $35 and almost in a messianic fashion Zillow announced that you know its co-founder and Silicon Valley legend Rich Barton was returning to the role of CEO and not just that but he was going to usher in a new era what was since known as Zillow 2.0 and what hypothetically made Zillow 2.0 great was that it would no longer only facilitate transactions by connecting buyers and sellers to agents but it would get in on the actual transactions itself and so mm. this you know has been broadly called i buying and Zillow Zillow's goal was to become a market maker buying homes on its balance sheet rapidly fixing them up and then quickly selling them it's a it's a pretty thin margin business but it was uh you know but it believed that it would provide a great convenience to sellers which is true and that Zillow would make more money on adjacent services to you know boost up its overall margins and it was a huge transformational idea and many people myself included that suspected that Zillow had a chance after all it had a huge relevant user base as well as a special founder and CEO at the helm and Notably, belief in that vision peaked earlier this year. In February, the stock hit a high of $212, about five times higher than when Zillow 2.0 officially began exactly two years prior, and about 21 times its IPO price. So there was a lot of hope riding on this new grand plan.
0: And you know, it seems to me at the heart of Zillow, Aaron, really from the earliest days was the zestimate this idea that the company has big data. It's got former Microsoft executives and other things. They're crunching numbers. They're putting, it's really kind of gutsy. They're putting a price on every residential property around the United States of America. Sure, nobody thinks that they've got it right in every case, but certainly if you were a realtor, a real estate professional, you were at least aware of it, whether or not you believed it or not. And Speaking of real estate professionals, increasingly, because of the prominence of Zillow, they all started these realtors started to advertise they wanted to be in that zip code the realtor who would pop up on zillow because so many of us me included were using zillow to kind of prospect around and look at what sorts of houses are trading for what prices these days and so the zestimate Aaron, it feels like part of the promise of zillow smartly with ai coming in and buying homes in that new chapter of zillow starting just two years ago it was kind of predicated on the idea that they really had it nailed with this estimate, or maybe they had the secret sauce Zestimate behind this estimate.
4: Yeah, it was really two things. I mean, one, absolutely, they it can't just be they're generally right, occasionally wrong with the Zestimates. They have to get to a point where they can nail it pretty much every time, because when you're operating on razor thin margins, you have to operate with precision. Um, and then, second, it's just a completely new type of business with completely different skill sets completely different operational needs. And that transition in and of itself is extremely challenging. But you're right. The the keystone of bringing, making all of that happen in the first place was the, the Zestimate itself.
0: And you and I are both rule breakers and not just as investors, but we kind of love innovators and disruptors and the taking of risk. And we recognize that sometimes there are going to be slow motion train wrecks or explosions we weren't expecting uh, among our Rule Breakers. And certainly the Rule Breakers scorecard, as winning as it is overall, has some hilarious, actually sadly hilarious, flops to it. Now, I do want to mention, without fast-forwarding the story too much, that even today after Chapter 3, Three after a very significant announcement that has happened within the last couple of weeks. Even then, the stock is still a seven-bagger for us from the 2011 initial cost basis we have in Rule Breakers. The market, by the way, is up five times in value. So if we're up 633%, that feels great. The market, though, is up 400%. So it's not like it's been a total market crusher. But nevertheless, without trying to spoil any future part of the story, Aaron, I try to think of this as a 10-year story. But now let's focus on the last 10 days or so because something really significant happened.
4: You're right. The third arc of Zillow's stock story unfortunately began last week after <laughs> many months of hype and optimism by management that its eye-buying business um, held a lot of potential and they could pull it off. Um, Zillow pretty suddenly announced its intention to leave iBuying altogether. And this was for Mm. many reasons, some operational, some financial. We don't need to get into all of the weeds, I don't think. But the long story short, the company couldn't figure it out. Um, So it announced its intention to write off $300 million in home inventory. It's laying off 25% of its workforce, Mm. and its stock price currently sits, uh, last I checked, at $66.17, which is a 68% wipeout from earlier this year. And right now, the company is resetting. It's not necessarily going back to Zillow 1.0, I don't think, but rather in a discovery period of trying to um, lay out a new vision for what Zillow 3.0 is even going to be. So. In other words, despite the momentum getting sucked out of the business and its ups- upside potential perhaps getting drastically reduced, um, Zillow is is down but not necessarily out. And I was actually going to echo some of what you were saying, David, just by you know saying that you know despite these missteps of late, like the stock is still a multi-bagger from when it went public and when you recommended it, it was also in the Odyssey One portfolio, which yep. we we brought into that portfolio in 2012, and it was a winner um for us there. Um and it's still the stock is still about double where it was when Zillow two was officially announced. So ah. um it feels like a loser. And depending on when you bought, it very well could be. I, you know, I feel like a loser for having, you know, recommended it in, in certain cases more recently. Um but again, zooming out to that longer term 10, 10 year view, which again is really what matters to us as long-term investors. It's not as big of a loser as it seems.
0: Yeah, and not to try to suggest to you, well, you are you already had a better title than this because you had go big or go home. But you know, I I do think down but not out is probably how I'm thinking about Zillow. These days, but Aaron, what is the didactic lesson that we should be taking away? One or more didactic lessons from the story, as you've told it for Zillow Group. Right.
4: I I actually, I initially wrote my lesson as something to do more with, you know, spotting warning signs and dealing with losers. But now that I'm here, I kind of want to put a more optimistic spin on it. I think that even though swinging for the fences may result in more outs. Than home runs, great rule breakers never stop breaking the rules, and they continue to push and take chances and recognize that there's always more work to do and always more value to create for the world. And it can be challenging at times, like it is with Zillow right now. Plans don't always work, um, but the best companies they take their hits and they find ways to get stronger as a result. And maybe that'll happen with Zillow. I'm not sure, but it's it's encouraging that when you zoom out to that 10 year view, Zillow is still. A winner. And I have a feeling maybe that when we zoom out again in 10 years, Zillow still may be a winner. Um, It might not transform the industry like it was hoping, um, but it still has a chance to do a lot of good.
0: Some really interesting parallels between this and Stitch Fix, both of them probably with more future than past. When we think of those companies, both of them substantially down from their January or February highs, And uh, both of them just sort of open questions, open books. Uh, They're pretty transparent as companies. It's not that hard to read their financial statements. I like those kinds of companies. They're both rule breakers. Certainly, they're both the innovator within their space in terms of what they're trying to do. I think their brand names people recognize, those who are clientele, those who are interested in buying a home or in looking better than whatever they would have bought off the rack at Nordstrom. And so uh, I, I find it really interesting that we randomly happen to have hit these two companies right next to each other. it will be really interesting to watch them going forward. Well, Aaron Bush, I always enjoy watching what you're going to do going forward. So thanks a lot for joining us this week, once again, on Rule Breaker Investing. And I look forward to your next appearance whenever that is. Thank you,
4: David. It was fun.
0: All right. Well, that brings us to stock story number five. Now, before we go into that one, let me mention what we're doing on next week's show and it is a review of Palooza. So I will have some friends back with me next week to review three past five stock samplers. Yep, five stock samplers from 1 year ago next week, 2 years ago next week and 3 years ago next week. Now for those keeping score at home, the one from 1 year ago was five stocks that will press on. We'll find out what they were and whether they've been pressing on during a very interesting year for the stock market. 2 years ago next week, five stocks for Conscious Capitalism. Anytime I'm going to put the brand Conscious Capitalism out there, I'm taking a little bit of a risk because if I pick bad stocks, people might think, Conscious Capitalism, that must not be a very good idea. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for five stocks for Conscious Capitalism. And then the last one we'll review next week from three years ago, we'll be sending it off to Foolhalla, and that would be five stocks that got trouble. And all you really need to know about that one, the secret is, that all five stocks simply have a company name that starts with a letter T. Yep, that's the brilliant theme behind that sampler. So five stocks that will press on, five stocks for conscious capitalism, five stocks that got trouble on next week's Rule Breaker Investing. Well, I'm the only one left around the campfire. Well, you're still here. Thanks. Thanks for being with me. It's just you and me, you and me and the fifth threaded additional sound effect showing off the production values that you've come now to expect from Rule Breaker Investing. Let's get into it. And yep, stock story number five. Well, I get to tell this one. And the title of stock story number five, I would say, is clearly the worst of the five titles of the five stock stories this week because I'm going with... Winners win, and so do NVIDIA Gerizer bunnies. That's right, NVIDIA Gerizer bunnies. My stock is, of course, NVIDIA. The ticker symbol is N-V-D-A. Let's hope my story is better than the title. Once upon a time, NVIDIA was picked on my side of Stock Advisor. The date was Tax Day April 15th of 2005. Now, this is a story I occasionally tell and retell on this show. And each time I do it, I always have one extra chapter I can add. What's happened to NVIDIA since the last time I told the story? But I always like to start right there. Once upon a time, our cost basis, $1.64. Now, before we move forward, I hasten to add that that is by no means where NVIDIA was trading. Sometimes people hear our low-cost bases and they think the Motley Fool loves penny stocks and we love to look for stocks that are trading under $2 a share. Well, the only reason that I'm reflecting NVIDIA at $1.64 is because the company has had three stock splits since tax day 2005. NVIDIA has split two for one, then it split three for two, and then this year it's split four for one. So that means that video was actually closer to 12 times a sixty-four, which means that in real life, it was trading right around $20 a share when we first picked it. But because of stock splits, it's now reflected in real life terms as a $1.64 cost basis. Again, Stick with me on this stock story. We're going to have a lot of numbers. We're really just looking at the graph. I'm not going to talk too much about the business. The business is amazing. It has one of the best CEOs in America that nobody really can name, and that would be Jensen Wong. But this is a company founder. This is the present day CEO. This is one of the biggest, most relevant companies in technology in the United States of America today. And I love to share what's happened with the stock since we first picked it, tax day of 2005. So we roll forward now. It's October 2007, and the stock in two and a half years has gone from $1.64 to 10 Wow, what a wonderful investment and what a happy recommendation for Motley Fool Stock Advisor members who bought because it was a six-bagger two and a half years later. That was October 2007. My stock story, by the way, is really just moving along the graph of the stock. So let's keep going to the end of 2008. About a year later, and NVIDIA, do you remember the great financial recession, the great recession of 2008-09? NVIDIA drops from 10, where I just mentioned it to you, to below $1.50. That's right. The six-bagger that we had racked up in two and a half years, three and a half years later, is below cost. We're underwater on NVIDIA stock. I've done that before. I'll probably do it again. It never feels good. I remember Solera Genomics was once a 10-bagger for our Motley Fool portfolio, the Rule Breaker portfolio online. And eventually it gave it all back and then some ended up being a loser. So this can happen. And it did during that era for Nvidia. So let's get through the Great Recession and fast forward to the end of 2014. Nvidia comes back and hits five. So $5 a share. That's half where it was seven years earlier. Remember it hit 10 it finally in 2014 hits five on the way back up. It's still a three-bagger, by the way, from our investment nine years earlier. So a three-bagger in nine years, NVIDIA from $1.64 now to five by the end of 2014. 2016 comes and it crosses 10. Yep, 10, where it had been in October 2007. We're back. Was that Jack Nicholson? The Shining. If it was, that wasn't much of an impression. By the end of that year, Nvidia has tripled from seven and a half to twenty-two and a half. The year two thousand sixteen, Nvidia, as a triple, becomes the top performing stock on the S and P five hundred. Five hundred of the largest companies in America. Nvidia was on it. Stock triples. Yep. More years than not, whatever stock triples on the S and P five hundred is definitely going to be ranking. Way up there for performance. It was the number one performer for 2016. It closed the year at 22 and a half. In one of my better moves as an investor, as we began 2017, I thought, what is going to be my first stock pick to start the year of 2017? And I decided, and I was trying to prove a point a little bit, I made it NVIDIA. So The stock that we'd recommended at $1.64 that was already at 22.5 and had just finished the top performing year on the S&P 500, I thought, start of the next year, I'm recommending it right here. I love it. And in 2017, I'm happy to say NVIDIA went from 22.5 to 52.5. And in 2018, it hits 70. So it goes up even higher, 52.5 to 70. And 2018 was a bad year for NVIDIA. This was a year in which a lot of the expectations of the growth of cryptocurrency, a lot of the hopes that cars really might drive themselves thanks to the AI chips that NVIDIA built and could embed in cars and many other things. And unfortunately, we found out that cars wouldn't be driving themselves all over the place quite yet in 2018. Bitcoin sold off and NVIDIA sold off as well. Whammo! From $70 to $30 a share, more than cut in half, It's a good year for the market, although that December of 2018, that last quarter, was ugly for many of our Rule Breaker stocks. But for NVIDIA overall, such a winner those previous two years more than cut in half in 2018. Well, in 2020, so that's just last year, early 2020, the stock crossed back over 70 again, an all-time high. And by the end of last year, NVIDIA closed at $130 a share right in the middle of the pandemic. Remember, our cost is a dollar sixty-four. Well, today, after quite a run in 2021, I'm really happy to tell you, maybe you own this stock. And if you do, I don't. This is one I've never bought. Yep. I don't buy all of my biggest winners and I don't have all of my biggest losers in some cases either, but I have enough winners. I'm pretty happy following my own advice. I just don't follow my own advice for all 200 plus stock picks I make over the years boy, do I wish I'd owned this one, but many Motley Fool members do, which is all that really matters to me. And today the stock has closed at about $304 a share. So that makes NVIDIA a 184 bagger for patient investors, especially ones who follow Motley Fool Stock Advisor. You know, all you had to do was hold for 16 and a half years and counting. And I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because it's a lot to hold any investment for that amount of time. And yet at no point did I feel as if if I snapped my fingers overnight and in, NVIDIA disappeared, at no point did I think that, well, people wouldn't really notice, people wouldn't really care. My classic snap test that I've talked about many times before, every time I've ever snapped my fingers and thought about NVIDIA, I thought the world needs NVIDIA and it needs it more in 2021 than it did in 2011 or 2005 when we first recommended it. So in a lot of ways, it wasn't that hard to hold. But the lesson that I want you to take away from this one should be pretty obvious. The ups and the downs for even the greatest stocks of an era are extreme. And you simply will never end up prospering as you could and should unless you are willing to allow it to triple back and then triple again, be a top performer and triple one more time and then give more than half of it All the way. So here we are, just over the last two years alone, Nvidia has risen from 50 to 300. It's really been one of the best stocks you could have held. And yet you've had to wait years and years to get that 184 bagger. Most of those baggers happening in just the last two years, years 14, 15, and 16 that we've held Nvidia stock. And I still think it's going up from here. So, my really lamely titled story Winners Win and NVIDIA Drizer Bunnies Win, too. It's a reminder of the resilience that I really think you need to exhibit if you truly want to win in the best way that you can as a stock market investor. And that means just hold, 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 hold. Not every stock, but the ones that are truly great. You will be so well rewarded and so gleeful. And so satisfied and fulfilled when you've been through those ups and downs to get to the point where NVIDIA shareholders are today. Well, I hope you enjoyed this edition of Stock Stories Volume 6. If you did, there are five others you can listen to for didactic lessons in other companies in the past, including some of the same voices you heard this week telling other stories. And I sure did enjoy our incredibly expensive campfire. I hope that the sounds that you heard will only make the stories more memorable. And that's really what we want from our stories, right? I mean, the reason that I could have read the Odyssey and the Iliad when I went through school, and probably you did too, is because there was an oral tradition that handed those stories down for centuries, which means great stories need to be memorable. Those stories certainly are. and We try to make them memorable, our stock stories, here for you. And to celebrate them, I'll just conclude with the titles to remind you of what you heard this week. San talking about Chipotle. His title was, when picking stocks, sometimes it pays to invest with your gut. Jim Mueller brought Rollins and entitled his story, Boring Can Be Great. Emily Flippin told the story of Stitch Fix. Well, the story we can tell thus far. And she entitled it, Stitch Fix's Missing Thread. Aaron Bush, of course, just came by and talked about Zillow Go Big or Go Home. And do I have to give my title one more time? Fine. And I talked about NVIDIA Winners Win, NVIDIA Gerizor Bunnies too. And that's a Rule Breaker Investing for you this week. Next week, again, a review of palooza Looking forward to five stocks that will press on, five stocks for conscious capitalism, and five stocks that got trouble. In the meantime, have a wonderful week. Fool on.